Looks like some kind of insect. It's a bee. Bee? A bee? Slow down now. What plane and what's dangerous? Bees, Scotty. Killer bees. Do you have any idea what those bees can do? Welcome to Killer Bees. This is not a Wu-Tang podcast. No, this is a podcast where we profile B-movie actors and genre icons. My name is Garrett Smith. My name is Tori Potenza. Uh, we can be found everywhere on the internet at Killer Bees Podcast. That's Killer BS Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and at gmail.com. We're also on moviejohn.com. That's the Philadelphia John, J-A-W-N. Proud to be part of their podcast network. You can now, I believe, look up Movie John on Patreon. Yeah, our Patreon has launched. So if you would like to support uh, Movie John, which is like a really just amazing community of uh, film nerds like us, uh, we have tiers starting at $5. And if you sign up within the first like 30 days, uh, which right now it's the beginning of June, um, you get a free enamel pin uh, that... Uh, is designed like by our folks at Movie John. Yeah, it's so. awesome. And uh, so by the time you're hearing this, I think there's only like a week or two left yeah. uh, to take advantage of that. Um, so yeah, head on over to patreon.com, look up Movie John, and um, we'd be grateful for you to be subscribers. You really I would. think Tori and I will probably be involved in some very like specialty projects on yeah. the Patreon side of things. Yeah, we should have some fun stuff yeah. uh, on the Patreon for you guys. So yeah. if you if you like our content, uh, you'll be able to hear like kind of some different specialty stuff yeah. on the Patreon. Um, and uh, for the show, uh, Killer Bees, our artwork is by Alex Schneider, and our music is by Christine Rayburn and her partner, Pat. And today, we're here to talk about one of my faves. Uh, obviously, like every other actor on the show, has become even more of a fave in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Peter Weller. Peter Weller, yeah. Uh, but before we, we talk about Peter Weller, is there any... Uh, movies or things that you watched and wanted to talk about. I mean, I think most of what I watched that we would want to talk about have been some stuff for your uh, current projects that you're working oh, on. Oh, yeah, we did watch some some interesting things. Yeah. That is true. So, I mean, I guess the only thing that I will toss out here, I watched a movie called The Hot Rock on Criterion Channel. Um, this is directed by Peter Yates. It's from a script by William Goldman. Uh, it's got a crazy cast. Robert Redford, George Siegel, Ron Liebman. Uh, there's Zero Mostellas in this movie. Uh, it is a really fun, interesting heist movie from the 70s. Um, and it's kind of a movie where, like, you think you're watching a really... You think you're watching, like, Ocean's Eleven. You think you're watching, like, a really smart team of guys sort of get together to pull off a rather difficult heist. And then like 30 minutes into the movie, they're already performing the heist. And you're like, well, then what is this movie about? And then of course the heist goes wrong. And what starts as one job spirals out into like four or five escalating jobs that they need to perform in order to reclaim the thing that they failed to get the first time. Um, it's really fun. It's very funny. I loved this movie. I thought it was great. And it's on Criterion Channel right now. If people uh, subscribe to that, they can watch it. I love when we talk about movies that we didn't see with each other that I'm like, oh, I didn't know you watched a thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Go well, ahead. my only other one was just Streets of Fire, which I know you were not as big a fan of as I was. I just felt like it was the b- most boring Walter Hill movie I've ever seen, which still made it like a fun movie. But yeah. uh, it, it didn't feel like it ever had like a big finale or climax, which is like a thing I sometimes love. And here's his... here's what I am willing to say is okay. that like the first time I saw The Driver, it was a three star movie. The second time I saw it, it was a four star movie. The third time it was a five star movie. Yeah. Yeah, but I also uh, have seen The Warriors multiple times, and it's always been a five-star movie. For sure. I mean, The Warriors <laughs> is just, like, incredible. But I am willing to say that I think Streets of Fire will probably improve for me on rewatches, which mm-hmm. I'm certain I'll do, based solely on just that opening shot of a bunch of neon lights and a puddle on a street. Uh, yeah. I really loved the way this movie looked. I thought the music was fantastic, especially the opening number. That's maybe the, in my opinion, the only big problem with the movie is that the opening number is so fucking electric and then the movie never quite lives up yeah. to that promise. Yeah, which is uh, always kind of upsetting where you're like, oh, man, the best thing was at the beginning? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, okay. it never quite lives up to that promise, in my opinion. Yeah. But I liked it a good deal. It's basically a rock and roll musical version of The Warriors. I don't think it's as good as The Warriors, or at least on my first viewing it wasn't. Um, but I did like it enough to recommend it. It's on Netflix. This movie, I think, has been notoriously a little bit hard to see. So if you're curious, if you like Walter Hill movies, uh, I do recommend Streets of Fire. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been working on a, a little bit of a project for a piece that I just submitted and will hopefully be accepted, and I'll get to talk about that at some point on here uh, to a, a film publication. Uh, yeah. But I've been doing a project that's focused on like teen thrillers in the 90s as kind yeah. of like the subgenre of erotic thrillers. You and I have been talking about sexy thrillers of the 90s. Which I love. Yes, and, and we, you have narrowed yeah. in on an even smaller subset yeah. of those. Uh, so yeah, I watched stuff like The Crush, uh, rewatched Fear with Mark Wahlberg, which I hadn't seen uh, in a I really long time. I had never seen Fear. Fear was wild. Now, I knew of the infamous roller coaster scene in Fear. Yeah. But I did not know about literally the rest of Fear, which is a <laughs> wild movie yeah. that I greatly enjoyed. Yeah, it was actually much more interesting to write about than I thought it was going to be uh, when I decided it was going to be one of the ones I would write about. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, crap. Actually, this movie does have a lot of interesting stuff going on, sure mainly does. between Mark Wahlberg and the dad character yeah, of uh, the film. Uh, uh, what's that actor's name? Uh, I forget. Wait, hold on. I'm going to grab it here really quick because I really, really like this actor. He is also the star of- Manhunter? Um, yes, Manhunter, which is like a favorite of mine. Uh, and I thought he was really good in this. Like, very, oh yeah, um, uh, William Peterson. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I guess he's famous really for being on TV. I think he's like the star of one of the CSI shows. Mm. Um, I don't know him from that. I don't watch those shows. I only really know him as his version of Will Graham in uh, Manhunter, and it is a wildly different performance than his performance in Fear. Uh, so if there are any yeah. Peterson fans out there, highly recommend Fear. Um, I think my favorite discovery from this was uh, Poison Ivy with Drew Barrymore, which uh, we did not watch together. So we'll have to watch that I again. I would like to watch that at some point. Because it's wild. We, uh, Garrett was kind enough to find the unrated version for me yes. as well, uh, which I assume is, uh, there's a lot of crazy shit in that movie. And I assume most of it is from the unrated cut. I can't I, imagine it got in the R cut. So. I always wonder with, movies like this like how far they went because the mpaa is fucking weird about this yeah stuff. i know it's true. sometimes you think it's like oh they must have cut like a half hour out of this and you find out it's like no nah, they just like shaved six seconds off of the shot yeah, with, like yeah like in fear it's like 
not that this happened, but it's like, you know, the MPA would have cut like six seconds of him fingering her on the roller coaster. They wouldn't have cut it out entirely. Yeah. But like, you know, oh, we can't show too much of that. That yeah. gets too graphic. That's you fair. know. Yeah. Uh, so I would be curious to know like exactly what is unrated about that cut. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to mention that I watched, uh, which I would like Garrett to watch uh, as well, is and it's by no means a B movie. In fact, it's probably one of the best things I've seen uh, that was released this year. Uh, but it is Bo Burnham's special Inside, yeah. uh, which I know a lot of uh, people have been watching and it is excellent. Bo Burnham directs, writes, does all of everything on his own in his house and it took him like a year to do it um it's really really funny it's really moving and like i cried uh at the end of it uh i just think bo burnham is such like a crazy talented human being uh and i haven't been able to get it out of my head since i watched it yesterday i have really enjoyed him i mean this sounds weird but since he was a teenager when he was just on youtube making like funny songs um I don't know. I think I would have fallen off the Bo Burnham bandwagon and almost did were it not for eighth grade, which yeah. I think is a really, really fantastic movie and kind of like, I don't know, proved to me. And, and by the way, I do think some of his comedy specials already proved this. I just didn't, I wasn't watching them or whatever. They didn't grab me the way they should have mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, he's just exceptionally talented. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, then uh, his kind of like co-starring turn in, um, uh, promising young promising woman. young woman yeah which i thought he was good. incredible in like also yeah. proves that he's got chops acting wise like he's yeah. just very talented he's like a month or two older than me and uh there's a moment in uh inside where you see him next to a clock that's like 11 or 58 and he's talking about how he didn't want to be working on this project still by the time he turned 30 he was like had hoped that he would not be stuck in this room alone still doing this and you're just with him as he's like turning 30 and like wow. realizing where he is and as someone who also turned 30 in quarantine i like really uh resonated uh with that so uh very very good and relatable for sure oh, that's cool I'm, i will have to watch that with you yeah really yeah. good um great well let us uh dig into peter weller jump into uh, petey yeah petey welly uh, which we may have watched like more of his stuff than some other folks just because there were uh, several things we had watched this year and actually in 2020 that were some of his films that we just watched with friends or for other reasons and so we've actually got quite a bit of peter weller in yeah part of the impetus for this episode was realizing we had watched a couple peter weller movies already in quarantine and so we thought we're already like halfway caught up on this guy let's throw a few more on the list and see what we can come up with yeah it makes makes my life easier felt a little bit like cheating uh, which was fun because i just got to to do less work than i i typically do on these um so yeah peter weller has 85 acting credits on imdb and 27 directing credits so it's interesting how many of these folks we've been doing have also uh dipped their toe into directing transitioned behind the camera yeah um yeah i mean we just talked about this last week as well and uh on our bill duke episode so it's come up pretty frequently and it's interesting um um, I have a couple quotes here. The first one uh, from him says, my career was always full of risks one way or another, and that's the way I like it. The other one that made me laugh uh, was a lot of things I don't do well. I don't do warm and fuzzy well. <laughs> I, I think I can pretty heartily agree with that just based on yeah. his filmography, yes. right? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, if you don't know who Peter Weller is, he is RoboCop is probably like the best thing. Yes. Um, That's definitely his most well-known role. Yeah, um, even though you rarely see his face in said role. Uh, but he did plenty of other fun stuff, including like one of my favorite uh, genre films. Um, so yeah, Peter Weller was born June 24th, 1947 in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Um, he, uh, his... Father was a federal judge and career helicopter pilot for the United States Army, and his mother was uh, an artist. He mentioned um, he traveled extensively um, as his father flew around the world. Uh, before he was out of his teens, he had attended schools in Germany, uh, Texas. Um, he eventually enrolled in the University of North Texas, um, attracted by a chance of playing trumpet in one of the college's celebrated jazz bands. He is a jazz musician as well. Yeah, and uh, has a lot of interesting stories about meeting people like Miles Davis, who he spent a lot of time with in the mm. end of his life, which That's I thought really was fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it says here, too, like three generations on his mother's side were piano players and jazz uh, musicians, which is like pretty interesting. That is interesting. Um, he also attended and graduated from Alamo Heights High School um, in 1965, um, attended and graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles, California. Mm -hmm. um, two weeks after graduating, he made his first appearance on Broadway as David in uh, Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival production of David Rabb's Stick and Bones, um, a role he also repeated on the London stage. Very cool. Um, he's a student of the legendary actress and drama coach Uta Hagen. Yeah, Uta Hagen. Uta uh, Hagen. Uta Hagen's a very famous acting coach. I mm. believe Uta Hagen's school is the actor's studio. Oh, I think that's what it's called. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, Weller did like some on and off Broadway stuff early in his career, including things like Summer Brave, Rebel Woman, and Full Circle. Um, he also won critical acclaim for his portrayal of Billy Wilson in Streamers. Mm -hmm. Um, and then continued doing Broadway shows, doing things like The Wool Gatherer and The Woods. Um, so he did quite a lot of stuff, but ends up kind of becoming more of a genre actor, uh, which is funny because he uh, has a quote here that I also have that says he doesn't care for horror and fantasy films. Uh, I never go to see them in theater. I know I've played in many of them, but I didn't do them because of their genre. I did them because I loved their scripts. I can't say why I like them so much on paper and dislike this kind of film so much on screen. Uh, when I go to the movies, I like romance, comedy, and thrillers. I hate gore. What a hilarious thing for the star of RoboCop to say. I know. RoboCop is one of the goriest movies in American history, I in know. my opinion. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have very different taste in movies, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, his career starts uh, in the 1970s. He has uh, a role in a TV movie in 1973 called The Man Without a Country, which was like a 1800s period drama. And then in 1975, he does a film called The Silence. Uh, a cadet at po West Point is subjected to internal exile, which means that other students refuse to talk to him or acknowledge his existence after he's accused of violating the school's code of honor. What the, that sounds so fucked up. That sounds really fucked up. <laughs> um, and then in 1979, he was in Butch and Sundance, The Early Days, a prequel film to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, that which I is think is hilarious. very interesting. I assume he's not playing either of those characters necessarily? Uh, I don't believe so. No. Uh, Joe LaForce is who he played in that movie, apparently. Um, and then we get to his career in the 80s. Um, so in 1980, he was in a romantic comedy called Just Tell Me What You Want. 
Uh, and then in 1982, he did a family drama called Shoot the Moon, which had uh, Karen Allen, Albert Finney, and Diane Keaton. Damn. That's a yeah. pretty wild cast. Uh, in 1983, he was in a film called Kentucky Woman with Cheryl Ladd, who was in uh, a couple of the movies I actually watched for my erotic thriller oh, really? uh, stuff. Yeah, he uh, or she was in, uh, she played the mom in Poison Ivy, uh, oh, okay, actually. Okay. Um, and this was a TV movie about a woman who faces harassment and humiliation when she goes to work at a, as a coal miner to support her small son and ailing dad. So it sounds like, what's that one? Is it Nicole Kidman or e- Cold Mountain or yeah. whatever? Yeah, I've never seen that. Me neither. This definitely just sounds like, I mean, this, if you were to, how do I say this? This sounds like a TV movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, for sure. This sounds like what I think of when I think of I can, of like, the, hear the 80s music yeah. that would play for this and everything. Um, he then does a film called Two Kinds of Love, which was a TV movie. And then uh, also in 83, does a film called Of Unknown Origin, directed by George P. Cosmatos, who is the father of... Um, Panos Cosmatos. Panos Cosmatos. The director of Mandy, which is a favorite in this house. Yes. Uh, and yeah, he directed Leviathan, Cobra, and Rambo, First Blood, Part 2. Hell yeah, he did. <laughs> George is uh, quite the genre filmmaker. Yes. Uh, and Of Unknown Origin is one we watched. It was a weird horror movie, and so I uh, made Garrett track it down for us. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is about a man who uh, he and his uh, wife and young child are living in this like newly renovated i guess like apartment house it's like a it's really hard to yeah, it's say it's like a house was was this the movie that took place in seattle I think it takes place in New York. New York. This one took place in New York. Yeah, right? I mean, it definitely looked like New York. Yeah, New York. From, and it was yeah. like a, it was like an old stone home in like on a corner yeah. in New York. But then it like on the inside looks totally different. It looks like this ultra modern yeah. like apartment in yeah. New York. Um, so they're living in this re- newly renovated space, and then he notices what seems to be a giant rat living in the house, uh, and it just starts terrorizing him, and he goes crazy trying to murder said rat. <laughs> yeah, it very much becomes a uh, Moby Dick story. I believe there's it's literally multiple yeah. references to Moby Dick in the movie. I think he's like reading that book at one point or something. Um, yeah, he is. And uh, yeah, I mean, so one thing that's interesting about this is I believe this is the first time that he headlines a movie. This is like his first like I'm starring. I'm the top build person in the movie. Yeah. And it's like him versus a giant rat, basically. So funny. Which is like. Uh, such a B-movie premise, yeah. you know, like a very kind of simple standard. It's weird, actually, how many movies are about, like, rats and, like, people versus rats. I know. Um, it is. But one of the things that I grew to love about Peter Weller over the course of uh, us doing research for this episode, and this movie is a great early example of it, is Peter Weller is an incredible monologist. He's really, really good at delivering monologues mm-hmm. in ways that are very compelling and interesting. Even if nothing on the screen yeah. is interesting, he's very compelling. And <laughs> There's there that is... scene at the dinner party yes, that is so awkward. Of. Okay, <laughs> he like is giving a monologue to like, are they colleagues of his? It's like what I think is his boss and yeah. maybe a client and some of his coworkers. So these are people he's trying to impress because he's also trying to like get a promotion and make more money in yes. his company. Yes. And it's clear that other people kind of want him to fail, but he's already obsessed with this rat problem. Yeah. <laughs> he gives a whole fucking monologue about like the history of rats and how they brought the plague yeah. and 
and his head is like and... down the whole time and everyone else is really visibly uncomfortable yeah. and he does not stop talking nope. about rats. He <laughs> goes hard on all of his rat research. Oh, um, it's really funny. And it's re- yeah, but it's also great. It's like he is really yeah. good at delivering those monologues and it's a re- it's one of the best scenes in the movie, Who's I think. the other actor we really liked in it, which uh he he plays like um not like a landlord, but like a, a kind oh. of maintenance guy. It's the one guy that's uh, from Scanners, Yeah, right? and we were like, this guy looks familiar, and it's because he gets his head blown off at the beginning of Scanners, yes. and that's all we know him from. Yes. But he was really funny in this. Uh, you know, he's like kind of a typical New Yorker uh, and plays really well against Weller. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly Weller, so it's it is fun to kind of have some of these little side characters that do take up some space. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, it's mostly him. His family is away through most of it, so it's just him in this apartment, mumbling to himself and giving weird monologues and speeches. Uh, but it it's it was like pretty okay. I thought we had we had fun with it, but it's like a three star movie for us. You're thinking of Louis Del Grande. Louis Del Grande. Louis Del Grande. Yes, really, really like great. That. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's someone I definitely would like to see in some more stuff. Yeah, I mean, I assume that he's part of the like Cronenberg stable of actors, right? Because there was another person who was also in Scanners that we recognized that had done some like other work too. Yeah, but now I can't remember who it might have been actually. Yeah, yeah. immediately there were it, it, like we talked about it. it must have been a Canadian production because there were like three people I recognized from like Cronenberg things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sp- ex- specifically, uh, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm with you. I thought this movie was like pretty good. Yeah. Um, it makes sense for him, especially since he says he doesn't really like genre stuff. Yeah. Like this is so weird and it's mostly this psychological thing with this man trying to dominate and like, you know, own his home. Based uh, on yeah. what he said about like, I like these movies on paper yeah. and I'm interested in their scripts. I do get how this is an interesting movie yeah. for him as an actor. Yeah. Um, uh, the movie itself, like it's not even my favorite George Cos- Cosmatos movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, um, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely see the interest for him, I think. It does, it's kind of, for one, he gets to headline a movie for the first time. Yeah. And it is a kind of, you know, I think especially a stage actor. Yeah. This kind of obsessive character, mm-hmm. you know, that's like coming apart at the seams. That's such like a kind of stage actor role. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can see why he would have liked this. And it's a, you know, it's like a single location thriller kind of, which very much has kind of like stage actor-y vibes, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, I, I thought it was all right. I enjoyed it. Um, there is a note that I had for when we talk about RoboCop, but I think it, part of it at least would be interesting to talk about now. But uh, Peter Weller mentions that he is somewhat dyslexic and oh. doesn't do well auditioning. Oh, yes. And so he typically doesn't audition for things. He said he's done it for like one or two roles but he's kind of just like somehow manipulated his way into being an actor that like wasn't necessarily a prestige actor from the beginning or anything but man it has managed to like get these roles and not audition which is wild to me yeah that's insane i mean he must have the fucking best agent in hollywood oh yeah absolutely um and then in 1994, uh, Peter Weller does The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which is uh, a favorite in my household. Both my mom and dad loved this movie. So this is a movie I saw at a pretty young age. And it is like PG. Uh, so it is like a really fun, like family friendly, like sci-fi movie yeah. that is like 
super weird. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I did this for my uh, former podcast, uh, Butter With That, for one time. I believe I picked this as my superhero movie because, uh, to me, I thought Buckaroo Banzai was, like, the ultimate superhero. Uh, he's established from the very beginning of the movie as being, like, a uh, rocket scientist and a surgeon, and he plays in this really popular rock band. Yep. Um, he's a martial artist. He's a martial artist. Like, so there's all of this stuff that you learn about There's him. literally a comic book in universe in the movie yes. about Buckaroo Banzai. And he has like, a, I don't know, like fan clubs that yes. are like... What are they called? Located the, in different areas. The... Oh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's BB again. It's like the blue something, yeah, right? Yeah, I forget. But, it, um, it's like a play on his name being Buckaroo Banzai, BB, yeah. and they're the blue something badgers i don't fucking know but yeah like uh this is like an early weller for me and it's funny because uh when we first started talking about doing peter weller we kind of talked about how some of the stuff we had seen him in felt like he was kind of a stiff actor and like maybe not as good as we really realized uh he was and this is one of the things where he he's just playing like a cool dude yeah so he is kind of like in a lot of moments like he's really fun yeah and he has like some really good like weird comedic moments in this yep. um but he's also playing against like john lithgow and christopher lloyd and jeff goldblum um so all of these like you know really fun actors that do have really big personalities um who kind of populate as like you know buckaroo's the cool guy and he's surrounded by all of these like interesting characters um, so it works really well for this, but it is interesting because I I mostly was just like, oh yeah, he's like a cool, like aloof dude, and that's like what he plays. Yeah, and I I don't even know if I would call him stiff in in this movie. Like I get that from RoboCop. Yeah. I get you know I only grew up with him as RoboCop, yeah. and he's literally playing stiff in that movie. Yeah, uh, and you hardly ever see his face. Yeah, this movie though I think is one in a long kind of chain of these movies where like. It's ostensibly a Peter Weller movie, yeah. and yet Peter Weller seems to have the least screen time of anyone in the movie. Yeah, I mean, they establish like such a um, like cast of characters, yeah. and there's all of these aliens. You have like the good aliens, the yep. bad aliens, all of the people that are in his band, yep. the weird government officials he's dealing with. So there is there are like so many moving parts in this movie, and it's like an hour and a half too, which yeah. is wild. I mean, yeah. it's got the vibe of like. Uh, you know, somebody who really liked serials, yeah. but obviously George Lucas already gave us the great modern serial yeah. with Star Wars by this point. And so it feels like a movie that's very much indebted to the serials that the creators mm. were in love with, but also it's aware that it's like trying to do that in a post Star Wars world. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of like having fun and sending them up. I really like this movie. I, I think it's it, such a good like cult yes. sci fi film. Yes. I yeah. it's I think as a midnight movie, it's like awesome. Yeah. It's really successful. As a movie you're watching on your couch at home, it can get a little boring, I think, mm-hmm. at times. Um, but uh, it is like one of the great midnight movies. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, just the that scene where he's playing with his band and he whips out a trumpet mm-hmm. and he's doing some of his jazz trumpet and stuff. It's like, I know. that is the fucking best. And then he plays the piano because he actually does play yep. the piano and is is very talented. Yep. Um, I remember, like, this is, because this is a movie I saw at a young age, this was, like, one of those movies that, like, you know, dudes in high school and like college were like impressed that I knew because sure. it was like, oh, it was like, oh, you actually have seen this <laughs> yeah, movie kind yeah, of thing, which yeah. I think is really funny yeah. because it does fall in that like 
cult kind of canon. Yeah, it's a cult movie. Yeah, for sure. and so it's like you know, not not too many people. Like this feels a lot like a uh, Repo Man for me, where yeah. they were just weird movies my parents introduced me to because they were really into them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I love Buckaroo, and it also ends with like maybe the best uh, credit scene. Oh, the musical number the at musical the end is so just good. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, I love that music in particular. Yes. Um, the same year, 1984, he does a film called Firstborn with Robert Downey Jr., Corey Haim, and Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah, I've not seen this, and I feel like this is uh, something that is kind of well-known in his early filmography that I am unfamiliar with. Yeah, the uh, plot is a teen must protect his family when his mother's sinister new boyfriend begins exerting his authority in their home. Oh, so it sounds like fear? Yeah. <laughs> and, like... 50 other like thrillers yeah yeah um in 1986 uh he does a film called a killing affair the story of a widow who takes in a drifter she believes killed her husband and she begins to fall for him but can't be sure if she can trust him okay that sounds nuts nuts yeah um he then does a tv film called apology with charles s dutton christopher noth and harvey firestein man dutton comes up on this show all the time a lot yeah um a killer and other guilty people respond <laughs> to an urban sculptor's metalwork designed as a confessional it sounds really strange and it is available on youtube i need you to know that the name of his character in the movie apology is rad hungate uh, yes, it should be. His name is literally Rad. Rad. And then in uh, 1987, he does RoboCop, uh, his his probably best known film, and probably the one like most people have seen of him. Yeah, directed uh, by one of our faves, Paul Verhoeven. I have some some funny notes here from like one of his interviews. He talks about this uh, getting RoboCop and like kind of the process of it. He says, "My agent uh, Rick Nikita said this guy Paul Verhoeven. He's making a robot movie." Um, I said. I've seen every one of Paul Verhoeven's movies, Soldier of Orange, Spetters, The Fourth Man. I think he's one of the most insightful, gifted filmmakers, I said. I'm going to be more, it's going to be more than about robots. Rick laughed and said, well, I don't know. I'm reading it. And it looks like a lot of, a lot of the movie is robots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I um, found an episode of Kevin Pollack's chat show that Peter Weller mm -hmm. was on and watched like a whole two hour interview with him. And he discusses this same thing yeah. of sort of like this movie kind of coming across his desk and mm -hmm. not really being interested in the robot movie, but finding out Paul Verhoeven is attached and yeah. being like, okay, well, I love him and I'm interested in him. Yeah. And then he talks about that whole audition thing in regards to mm -hmm. this movie. Did you read any about this? Uh, he, he like mimes the audition so or the, like kind of does like RoboCop through movement as opposed to like speaking the lines. Yeah. The way he describes it is... Verhoeven is like, yeah, great. I'm interested in you. Come audition for my movie. And him being like, I don't do that. I'm really bad at that. Like, I'm not. If you want me for the movie, yeah. get me in the movie. And Verhoeven's like, I, I, I don't know what to say to that. If you're going to be in the movie, you need to come audition. Yeah. So doesn't happen. But then comes back to him and says, Look, can you please come audition for this movie? And he's like, I'm just not going to do it. And literally like four times, <laughs> they're like, Come audition for this movie. And he's like, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And so he finally shows up and he's like, I can't. And then literally just. The way you described it was like basically in the parking lot, just starts moving around, and there and Verhoeven's just like, okay, fine, you're in the movie, you're RoboCop, Go, okay, fine. <laughs> Uh, there's a, also a, a thing here about like him meeting Paul for the first time. He said, uh, he said, um, 
this is going to be an operatic film with a small story in front of it. That's how you make all your films. He says, how do you know that? And I said, because I've seen all your films, and, yeah. which I just think is really funny. Like that, like he's like, I'm a huge fan of yours, obviously. Like I know exactly like, which is a thing we've talked to a lot about and why I like Verhoeven is like, he makes these big, crazy action, sci-fi genre films, but there is like so much like, uh, Interesting, like storytelling going it's on. Great thematic work that's it's happening great inside of work. those. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that seem like things that you could just watch the movie and totally ignore it and be like, "Yeah, sure, this is a fun action movie." But like, there is so much that is like, no. But like, you get that he's like talking about fascism yeah. and talking about gentrification and like all of this other stuff that is actually pretty important and it's just hidden in his sci-fi movie. Yeah. Um. In, in that interview, Veer uh, or um, uh, Weller said that. Uh, um, like a few years before this, he had made a list of like his goals as an actor, mm. and like number three on the list was work with Paul Verhoeven. Oh, that's uh, so cool. And so like he got to kind of like fulfill that that yeah. wish of his, which is really neat. He also talked about like the makeup process for this movie. Um, at the time of this interview, he said, as far as he knew, it was still the record holder for the longest anyone had to sit in makeup for prosthetics. I mean, and it was like six and a half hours just to do the thing with his face. The face looks insane. Yeah. Like I, when we watched RoboCop recently for the first time for me, and then we just watched uh, the sequel, which yeah. we'll talk about a little bit. But every time I look at it, I'm like, I don't know how they made it look like they just stretched a face across a robot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like prosthetics, I guess. Yeah, and it's apparently wild. it was like a six and a half hour job every day. Um, and, uh, he, um, you know, the suit itself was like two pieces, basically. It was like this black kind of rubber suit that went on first and then mm. bigger rubber pieces that went on top of it. And he had this great story about how he spent six months training with this very famous movement coach. That's like also a mime for how he was going to move as RoboCop. Mm -hmm. And then he got there to the set and they were only working for like one or two days before him and Verhoeven like blew up at each other because he could not move the way he thought he could once he was inside mm -hmm. the suit. The suit was like very restrictive. Verhoeven wanted very specific things out of him that he couldn't give him from being restricted within that suit. And they like started to get at each other. They, like the movie almost fell apart in the first couple of weeks of shooting it. And so they had to have this big meeting where they brought, uh, I think, Botine in because mm -hmm. he had done that costume. Yeah. Uh, Rob Botine, who we're both big fans of, yeah. made the RoboCop suit. Brought him in, brought the movement coach in, brought Verhoeven in, and they're all there. They're all discussing. And he was like, the way Weller told the story was like, the only calm voice in the room was the movement coach. Everybody else is freaking out about what's happening and fighting with each other about what they need to do. And he pulls me aside and he just goes, all you're going to do, we don't have to throw anything away. I know you feel like you're about to throw six months of prep away. Mm. You don't throw anything away. Just do everything slower. Go way slower than you think you have to go. And he was like, I felt like that was going to be a problem because I'm from the theater. I don't want to do this like kabuki expressionist. Like, that's not what I'm about. He was like, but then that coach, and I forget what movie he specified, but he basically pulled an old silent film out mm -hmm. where this actor was doing this like villainous character and he was doing this very big bravado, but having to like turn and scowl at the camera mm -hmm. and like, you know, the way you would think of like the Nosferatu mm -hmm. silent movie and stuff, this big expressive acting. He was like, the first three minutes of that movie, I was like, I hate this shit. This is fucking ridiculous. This is why I don't like this kind of acting. Mm -hmm. He's like, three hours later, it's like this long movie. I'm entranced by it. I'm like fully in. And it convinced me like, that's what it is. That's what I have to do. I have to do that like big bravado, 
kind of like you know mime huge movements thing and that made the character work for it. I thought that was like a really interesting kind of like problems present themselves on the day and everybody yeah. has to kind of like get more collected and calm themselves down to get the thing working. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's fun. I like that. Um, then in 1988, he does a film called The Tunnel, which was a Spanish film he did with Jane Seymour about a painter who becomes obsessed and begins an affair with a mysterious woman who is touched by one of his works. Okay. Um, he then does a, a film called Shakedown with Sam Elliott. Shakedown! Uh, which is about a legal attorney and a renegade cop who team up to stop corrupt cops. Yes. In uh... New York City. Or, yeah, this was New York, right? Uh, this might have been the Seattle one. Now I can't remember which one was Seattle. One of these was Didn't Seattle. I watch, wasn't Fear the one that was set in Seattle? Oh, maybe. <laughs> you keep saying Seattle, and I was like, that's the only thing I remember us talking that about Seattle with. That might be Fear. <laughs> yeah, Shakedown's probably New York. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the corrupt cop uh, that they are like really up against, I forget his name, but he plays... Um, I think his character's name is Schrader in The Burning. He's like the meathead jock character in The Burning. And I had never seen him in anything else. But the fact that he plays like a cop with a ponytail and is still just doing his like jock meathead thing, uh, like really worked for me in this movie. Yeah. Uh, What is that actor's name? Oh, because, like, fucking John C. McGinley is in this movie. Yeah. There's so many good people in this movie. Yeah, it's got a good cast. Um yeah, including like his one of his love interests in the movie is like a uh, a scientist character in RoboCop. She's like kind of the the handler that's behind the scenes at the the police department. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. yes. I you know I'm having trouble figuring out like which of these actors actually is that guy. That's okay. Let's just talk about Shakedown. <laughs> oh, I fucking loved Shakedown. I thought Shakedown. This was like. Honestly, maybe my favorite movie that yeah, we was, watched in this whole bunch. He's so fun in it, too. Like, he, he plays an attorney that, like, is clearly, like, you kind of mentioned, like, he's, like, a reformed beatnik type. Like, he's still, like, thinks he's, like, young and hip. And, like, it opens with him, like, m- singing Jimi Hendrix as he's, like, getting his, like, nutritious, like, shake in before work as an attorney. He's constantly wearing, like, Summer of Love shirts that are, like, yeah. tie-dyed and stuff. But is working as a legal clerk. And so like my yeah. impression of him in this movie, and we can talk about this like more towards the end of the episode, but like this movie might be the like actual Peter Weller performing on screen, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I get the impression because multiple of his movies, his characters just say like, come on, man. And say things like, Oh, that's groovy, baby. Like he says a lot of like hippie beatnik catchphrases mm-hmm really as all of his characters. Once I realized this, I started paying attention for it in the movies we were watching, and he says it in all of the movies. He's constantly talking like he's a former hippie. But he's always playing these, like, upwardly mobile, fairly well-off white guys that are, you know, um, it it just seems like they're former beatniks that are now... Basically, my impression is he's a yuppie, right? Like, he's like the the earliest version of a yuppie who, like, is very intelligent... Uh, very, you know, was cool in his day, was maybe into poetry, whatever, rock music, but now is trying to make a, a place for himself in the world, is trying to make, you know, that, that sort of American dream mm-hmm. come true. And that's very much this character, right? Uh, but he still has that beatnik energy where he's like, he's literally trying to defend a guy that fully admits he murdered someone, 
But the thing in self defense. But it was what yeah. his claim is that it was in self defense. But it turns out it was a cop, so everyone's just assuming that this is a drug dealer who like killed a cop. Who killed on a purpose. cop? Yes, yes. Um, and he's there to try and prove the whole movie is yeah. about him trying to prove that this guy is innocent of of uh, yeah. of murder. He was he was killing in self defense, and and in doing so uncovers that there might be like a lot of police corruption in the city that he's working yeah. in. Um, um, yeah, and then just uh, decides to get into like what I assume is a, a lot of illegal activity yes. with uh, Sam Elliott's Sam Elliott's character because he's always just carrying a gun and like breaking down doors with Sam Elliott and like killing people and you're like, what the fuck? What are you guys doing? It's really weird. Because it's like they're not like good cops slash lawyers necessarily, but like also are good and better than everyone else that we're introduced to. It's one of those movies where their goal is something that we are on board with, so they are the heroes yeah. of our movie. But like, if you uh, you know zoom out, uh, it definitely becomes problematic. But yeah. especially because the movie has a very a cab feel, but then is also like, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, it's basically a Fast and Furious movie. They finally get this guy off on the murder charges and then immediately go murder the people that charged him with the murder charge. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, it's really crazy when you think about the politics of it. Yeah. the I, I really liked this movie and now I'm having a little trouble just because I found an article of like about Peter Weller talking about this movie and why it like, you know, is interesting in like modern times. And one of the things was that it's like a, a rough, like dirty action movie and we don't really get stuff like that now. And I was like, yeah, great point. And then he decides to also compare it to the Me Too movement and mentions the idea of witch hunts. Accusations alone can ruin someone and that's a sad fact. It's an appropriate movie to see today because we're dealing with the presumed guilt before innocence, we're living more and more in that age. I feel like a lot of guys from his generation yeah. have this opinion about, like, even fucking, I, I mean, I heard John Waters talking about exactly this recently. Yeah. And John Waters was even like, I think cancel culture would cancel me. Like, if I, if, if I were doing what I was doing in my early career now, yeah. people would have canceled me. I just have a really big problem with... Um, people comparing me to yes. and uh victims accusing yes. uh you know rapists yes. and and bad people of like the horrible things that they've done to witch hunts yes. which is you know hundreds of thousands of women being persecuted and burned at the stake and like I'm like there is no comparison and the like I was just triggered the moment I saw him compare me to to witch hunts and yeah. I was like oh dude yeah. I like you so much shut your fucking old man mouth <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he uh I definitely like that Kevin Pollock chat show episode he mentions being like friends with Woody Allen who he made a movie with friends yeah. with James Woods yeah. like I think Peter might be maybe a little more. Yeah. I, I don't know that he's conservative necessarily, but I, he certainly is a boomer. You know, yeah. like he's of that generation, and I think probably uh, doesn't have the best opinions about everything. Yeah, yeah, I um, agree. Because I actually think that Shakedown is a relevant movie. In in like the fact that he's defending this like young black man who's a drug dealer and trying a, to against help him. P yeah. police corruption. Mm -hmm. You know, like yep. I actually think there are things that make this movie very relevant while being a problematic, entertaining yeah. kind of sleaze fest. You yeah. know what I mean? Which I like. Like, I'm okay with that. I'm into that. I kind of like when I watch these old exploitation movies yeah. and find out that, like, oh, yeah, they have interesting things to say. They are not up to date politically. No. But, like, they do have interesting things yeah. to say. They address them in interesting ways. 
I'm okay with a movie being both sleazy and interesting by today's yeah. standards. I mean, I love, I really loved this when we yeah, watched it. I thought too. it was so fun. And then I saw that and I was like, oh man, why'd you have to to bring it there? Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, there there is plenty of interesting stuff yeah. that I think is worth watching. I actually, there's the scene where, uh, there's a couple courtroom scenes where Peter Weller delivers like, again, incredible monologues yep. where he's like uh, giving his like closing statement about the, the man that's on trial. And also, like that actor who's playing the drug dealer. Oh, yes. Very good. Giving like a very heartfelt and sad like confession about yeah. what actually happened. Um, and most people not believing him because he's young and black and yeah. deals drugs. Yeah. Um, so there's like a lot of good, powerful like acting moments in this movie that like are super relevant with where we stand yeah. with like uh, police brutality today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just to sell people on this movie, it is also a fucking crazy, sleazy act. Action movie. It's very crazy and uh, There is a whole fucking monologue delivered by Sam Elliott where he starts by telling you about the woman he was in love with once, and that all that story ends with a dog falling out of a 23-story window. Yep. Uh, it is wild. It's a really weird movie, but it's got great action scenes. It's got all this awesome on-location New York City nighttime footage, some really good, like, you know, late night neon, like all the stuff that I love in movies. Like I, I really loved this. I thought it was super fun. Yeah. I really think people good. should definitely give it a shot. Uh, all right. So then in 1989, he does another like sci-fi horror film called Leviathan, uh, which we actually watched uh, earlier in quarantine in 2020 with some of our friends when we were trying to do like uh, these movie nights where we like get on Slack and, like text and talk during the movies. And this is one of the ones we did early on. Um, also George P. Cosmatos. Yeah. So yeah, he like works with this director again. Again, I don't remember much about this movie, but I think that's also because we watched Underwater and those two movies have very similar plots yes. and I can't separate them in my head anymore. <laughs> yes. Uh, I be, and, and also because they are both just alien underwater. Yeah. And it's like, oh, they work for mining companies yep. and there's this like corrupt, uh, like they're the company is corrupt and doesn't really care about like the conditions for these workers and all of this stuff so it's like it's interesting how much is similar about these movies uh as well as like being an alien ripoff yes uh and then yeah there's like a weird cast of characters that ernie hudson's in this yeah, movie yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you know from ghostbusters when i face very funny actually i i watched a clip from this today to try and remind myself mm-hmm. of, like weller's and weller's just doing like pretty standard like action hero stuff in this movie yeah he's like kind of running the whole like operation underwater yeah, yeah. i imagine after robocop he was like can i actually be like an actual action star like i'd like yeah. to do that just one time mm-hmm. um there's a great scene though where uh like you know the company that they work for is telling them like oh you're gonna have to stay underwater a little longer because yeah. there's like a, a tsunami or something making its way over mm-hmm. that area or something like that and uh ernie hudson says something like uh like bitch we're down here like he th- she says like we're not coming for you just yet and he's like bitch we're stuck down here <laughs> like it's really funny oh man yeah uh so yeah like pretty like goofy like underwater yeah. alien ripoff that's like you know a fun time I and we enjoyed this. yeah we enjoyed watching it with with friends yeah. and, and stuff um 
the same year, 89, he does a film called Cat Chaser, which is directed by Abel Ferreira, and it's based on an Elmore Leonard book. Yeah, uh, um, which both of those things, I think, probably interest us in their own ways, right? Yeah, uh, it's about a Miami hotel owner who finds danger when he becomes romantically involved with the wife of a deposed general from the Dominican Republic, where he fought many years back. Wow, uh, that even for an Elmore Leonard thing, that sounds uh, like pretty strange. Interesting for Ferreira, though, just yes. based on like what I've seen of his so far. Totally. I mean, you and I became fascinated with Frere because of Miss 45. Yeah. Um, we also watched Driller Killer, which I think we were both kind of yeah. so-so on. I'm not a fan. Um, but, uh, you know, I would like to see more of Frere's work. Me too. Um, and then we get to his films in the 90s. So in 1990, he does RoboCop 2. He comes back. Uh, Nancy Allen also comes back for awesome. this. Uh, and uh, I... You know, we kind of talked about. I wonder why he would come back for this because you know he's just putting on that helmet again. Is why the really fuck present. would you do another one of these, yeah. dude? They cover your face through the he whole gets, thing. He gets one flashback scene where you just see him in a mirror yeah. uh, with like his family. It's very weird. Um, but one of the things he said is they offered me a price tag. He goes, <laughs> "I was happy to do it, and I was happy to be gone." I bet. I was like, I "All bet. right, fair you enough." You know, and that's interesting because RoboCop was fucking huge. Like RoboCop was literally marketed to kids. Yeah. They were like action yeah, yeah. figures and stuff. So it makes sense to me that if the studio was like, this movie is huge, we got to make a sequel, they probably did offer him some good fucking money probably. to come back and be RoboCop. Yeah, I mean, they made a third one, not with like any of the. Uh, yeah, actually, no, I don't Nancy think Allen returns. came back oh, she for does the return third for one. That? Jesus. Yeah, but I don't think anyone else does. Yeah, because I thought, so like, I had never seen RoboCop 2 before. I had yeah. never really had interest in the sequels. This movie, for, uh, kind of famously, Frank Miller, comic book artist and writer, wrote the script for Which this. Is wild. Yeah. Um, it's a mess. <laughs> supposedly it was kind of bastardized by the studio. You can literally go buy a RoboCop 2 comic book that is supposedly more like what he actually mm -hmm. wanted the movie to be. Frank Miller, I mean. Um, I thought this movie was for like the first maybe half hour or hour, a pretty good RoboCop sequel. Yeah. I was like surprised and impressed with the story they chose, like the direction they wanted they to go. They tried to keep the tone of they like Verhoeven's film, it totally, seems like. Some of like yeah. the same kind of like thematic work was being mm. done. But then the second half almost kind of undoes some of that thematic work by becoming a little bit more of like actually some conservative ethos, like action mm. movie stuff. And just gets messy. It's like, it, it just gets messy yeah. in a way that's... Not necessarily uninteresting, but but it wasn't as good or successful yeah, as the it, first movie. It doesn't seem to have like a clear clear message, like yeah. or social commentary right, right. as like the first one did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, everyone's kind of corrupt and it all fucking sucks. Yeah, <laughs> like by yeah. the end of it, I was yes. like, yeah, I don't know if I'm supposed to like any anyone really. Right, right. Um, but I, I did think the initial concept was was uh, I, I thought a more interesting concept than you would imagine for yeah, a RoboCop I sequel. Agree. Um, and, and it does have that mini kaiju moment in the finale, which obviously I was a huge fan of. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, also this movie looks like a pop tart. Mm -hmm. Uh, this movie has a lot of neon shit. There's a scene in the beginning where he's like going after some people in a fucking arcade and I was real into it. Yep. Um, all right. Then he does a uh, rainbow drive, a TV movie with David Caruso and Stella Ward, uh, who was his former fiance. Um, a Hollywood multiple murder is investigated by a homicide cop, despite high placed efforts to cover up the crime. I love the title. Rainbow drives a great yeah. title. I also wonder if Stella Ward is the woman he referenced in the interview I was watching where we'll get to Naked Lunch in a minute. He talked about Naked Lunch coming at just the right time because he had just broken his engagement off I'm six months before sure. shooting. That I makes bet a lot that's of sense. this woman. Yeah. 
Um, in also night in 1990, he does Women and Men: Stories of Seduction, a TV movie with uh, Melanie Griffith, James Woods, Molly Ringwald, and uh, actually Ken Russell directs one of the segments. Oh, of this okay, film. that's uh, interesting. Ken Russell, who did The Devils and Crimes of Passion, who we really liked. Two of our recent favorites. Yes. Yeah. Um, in 1991, he does Road to Ruin, which was a French film. It was a romantic comedy. All right. And then uh, Naked Lunch, which is uh, directed by David Cronenberg and is an adaptation of William Burroughs' uh, story of the same name, uh, which uh, I watched uh, for my Cronenberg series that I have been doing on um, Cinema 76 and now Movie John. Um, so yeah, I haven't actually released this one yet, but it is an interesting uh, an interesting film uh, from the perspective of like sex and gender because uh, Burroughs was like a, a closeted like gay man, yeah. and uh, that's what a lot of Naked Lunch deals with um and i would say that i think like some of like the those themes are not really themes that we see in a lot of other cronenberg films. right right cronenberg's um, movies don't normally deal with queerness at least in that particular regard of it, but yeah. yeah like this is you know very much about this man who uh is like maybe trying to suppress some stuff and then also maybe trying to explore some of it. Um, There's a lot of like interesting imagery with like, um, he's fully in a drug haze the whole time. Yeah. Contributes to a lot of it. Bugs. They like look like these big centipedes and stuff. And like some of like the queer characters are like wearing them as necklaces and stuff. So it's like the symbol, uh, which is pretty interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, he plays like the Burroughs character who is like this kind of drugged up, like, writer and like yeah. kind of acting in a, as a detective too he like thinks he oh right he like thinks that he's like working undercover for like the FBI or something yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's a very it's a weird paranoid fantasy of a, of a druggie you yeah know? it's a very weird film it's um, I mean and it's again him playing this beatnik character I mean yeah. he's literally playing one of the beatniks now yeah. you know um, yeah I, I strongly get the impression that he identify I mean he, he said as much in a couple interviews that uh, this was his favorite Burroughs book. He went mm-hmm. after Cronenberg for the, he like wrote Cronenberg yeah. a letter that he really wanted to star as Burroughs in yeah. an adaptation of this. And Cronenberg also like loves Burroughs. Um, yeah. And in one of the articles, like does talk about like yeah, it was like different for me because like I am not like a queer man, right. and so like he did like you know talk to Burroughs a lot about yeah. what this adaptation would look like, uh, which is pretty cool. So yeah. I I like that like these guys were so into Burroughs um, and like were very excited to be doing this film also. totally and yeah. it's it's an interesting movie it's not my yeah. favorite cronenberg but no but i liked it there's yeah. like some a lot of interesting like ideas going on and just some awesome like body horror yep. and just like uh good practical effects like the uh they're like roach uh keyboard kind of yeah. things that they're writing on and then there's that like big alien character like there's some really cool fun stuff in yeah. this yeah um, and you know it's kind of the tail end of Cronenberg's like quote unquote weird phase of his career right yeah like, it's like kind of getting out of like a lot of the like body horror yeah yeah he's uh, moving towards the end of, of that phase yeah. of his career which is kind of interesting in its own way um, yeah so I mean this movie's cool because it's like uh, one of our new favorite actors mm-hmm. and one of our favorite directors and I think it helps with the understanding of like who Weller is off screen yes. just because he is so much of a beatnik and a lot of his characters and all that kind of stuff yeah 
1992, he does a film called 50-50 with Robert Hayes, uh, who I wrote, he was the star of the Starman TV series. (laughs) Yes, right. And Charles Martin Smith, who who directed this movie, uh, but was also in Starman and Deep Cover. We, like, really liked him. Oh, shit, yeah. Uh, So I I just thought it was funny that there was, like, two different Starman uh, connections with this particular film. But, yeah, I didn't realize he was a director, but he plays um, in Starman. He's, like, the nerdy, like, alien, like, guy that, like, wants to help them in the end. Um, Okay, I got you. And then in Deep Cover, he kind of plays, like, the the dirty handler for Lawrence Fishburne's character. So he's like kind of just this like nerdy white guy that um, is really awesome in like all of the roles we see him in. So I'd be interested to see this and like also like kind of know what he's like as a director. Yeah. Um, The story is about two bickering mercenaries who are hired by the CIA to overthrow a South Southeast Asian dictator. Okay. That's interesting. By the way, uh, he also directed Dolphin Tale. Um, Great. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this guy was the star of um, uh, American Graffiti, one of the stars of that. That's one of the things that I love him from. Yeah, we love this guy. He's he's so interesting. I love that description. Two bickering mercenaries hired by the CIA. I would I would watch the shit out of that. Yeah. Uh, in 1993, he does a film called Sunset Grill, which is a thriller that has uh, Stacey Keach and Kelly Jo Minter from um, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. We love her. As well as John Rice Davies. So it's got uh, a pretty interesting cast. Sunset Grill, great title. Yeah. Gotta see this movie. In 1994, he does a TV movie called Partners, which he also directed. Uh, well, it's like it's like credited as a TV movie, but it's like a short. Yeah. Uh, that he actually, w- it was he was nominated, right? Yeah, nominated for an Oscar yeah. for uh, Best Short in uh, 1990. Well, I guess it would be the 1994 Oscars. So, yes, yeah. 1994 yeah. Oscars. Yeah, Best Short Film Live Action. Yep. Um, so and that's incredibly interesting. And the cast is Kevin Nealon, Robert Hayes, Charles Martin Smith, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ed Begley Jr. Yeah, like, it's got a wild cast. Really interesting yeah. cast. I, I really would like to see. I tried to find this so that we could watch yeah. it because I think it's incredible that this was to my knowledge the first thing that peter directed yeah this is and he has a now a long directing career mostly in tv but to direct a short film and have it be nominated for an oscar i mean that's like pretty incredible for your first thing to to be nominated like that yeah and i like that him and charles martin smith were like hey can you be in my movie that i direct and like vice versa and robert hayes comes along for the ride too like all these guys just like keep circling each other it's interesting um, he then does a film called The Substitute Wife, a TV movie with Farrah Fawcett and Leah Thompson. Love them. Um, this is a, such a funny description. So in Nebraska, in pioneer days, a woman who knows she is going to die asks a prostitute to replace her with her husband and four children in order to make it possible for them to keep their family farm. Whoa. Yeah. What a wild. W- okay. Okay. I like this. I do not care about pioneer day nope. period drama, but that's such a weird premise. Yeah, I'm I would watch vaguely it. Vaguely interested. Uh, he then does a film called The New Age with Samuel L. Jackson, Corbin Burnson, and Judy Davis, who Whoa. played his wife in Naked Lunch. Okay. Um, a, the uh, a couple wants something more out of life, and so after losing their jobs, they decide to open up their. A clothing boutique and open up their marriage to other partners. <laughs> okay, all right, interesting. Yep. And that's a uh, Corbin Burnt. That's a uh, the dentist. The dentist. All right. Yes. Okay. 
Um, he has an uncredited role in Lakota Women, Siege at Wounded Knee, which was a TV movie. Yeah, ready? Um, and then in 1995, he has a role in Mighty Aphrodite, which was directed by Woody Allen. I wrote Boo next to it. Yeah, we chose Boo. specifically not to watch uh, Allen's movie. Yeah. Um, he then does a film called Beyond the Clouds, which is a French anthology from director Michelangelo and. Antonioni and Wim Wenders who yes. did Paris, Texas. Yes, very good. Uh, I think I heard him talk about this in that interview I was watching and it seems like Antonioni was somebody he was like very interested mm. in working with. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then the same year, 95, he does Screamers, which is a Philip K. Dick adaptation from writer Dan O'Bannon, uh, which, of course, uh, he wrote Alien. Yes. And uh, Weller stars along with uh, Jennifer Rubin, who is uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. She's, like, the awesome, like, punk girl. Love uh, her I really love. Movie. Um, so, yeah, this is another one we watched last night. <laughs> I don't have a ton to say about Me it. Neither. It's pretty boring sci-fi overall with some, some interesting ideas. It just never, like, fully gets... I don't know, to be as like fun or interesting as it wants to be. The movie has, I think, an incredible production. There's some great matte paintings yeah. throughout. There's some really cool special effects sequences, yeah. some great creature effects. Yeah. Yet the movie looks like it's like a sci-fi pilot for a television series. Bad. Like it doesn't look good, even though the production itself is like wonderful. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are some really cool fucking ideas in it. Uh, like automaton child armies, but then <laughs> you never really get the promise of those things, you know? Like, yeah. they're not, it, a lot of the stuff that's cool about it is kind of unfulfilled and left on the table, it feels like. I love um, the word automaton. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I liked a lot of the concepts in this movie. I did not think it was a terribly well executed movie. It's also like, here's another twist, yeah, like constantly. And, it, and I was like, oh, we get it. And it didn't even feel like Weller was totally showing up for this one, no, you know? Definitely not. Uh, same year, he does a film called Decoy, uh, which he stars in with Robert Patrick. Okay, need to watch, just based on that alone. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're just like both like 80s robotic like yes. action actors, which yes. is funny. Um, Baxter and Travis are two guys hired to protect a millionaire's daughter from bad guys. Who do you think plays stuff. Baxter and who do you think plays Dexter? Mm. Or Travis. Oh, right, Travis. <laughs> I got him wrong anyway. I'll give you a hint. He, uh, uh, Weller plays Baxter. There you go. That sounds right. Which would have been my guess. Um, in 1997, he does a film called Top of the World with Dennis Hopper about a former policeman who gets out of jail. Um, he and his estranged wife become embroiled in a casino crime. <laughs> okay, I mean, Dennis Hopper, pretty cool weirdo. Uh, yeah, for sure. Love that weirdo. Um, he then does a film called End of Summer, which is a period romance that has uh, Julian Sands in it, who I, I really love from Room with a View. Oh, okay. Uh, just interesting that he did, like, period romance stuff. Yeah. Um, in 1998, he does a film called Sands of Time, which was an Italian adventure film. I do like Italian adventure films. And then in 1993, he does The Diplomatic Siege with Daryl Hannah. I got to tell you. In the Kevin Pollock chat show interview, mm -hmm. he said that the best on-screen kiss he's ever had was with Daryl Hannah. In this, I, I guess. I assume yeah. in this. And he said it was because she was not acting a kiss. She was just kissing him. She just wanted to kiss him. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I kind of like the way you phrased that. That's really <laughs> but, yeah. funny. 
Um, we then get to his films in the 2000s. So um, he ends up doing like lots of TV uh, kind of from here on out. Um, so at this point, he does uh, he has a recurring role on Odyssey 5. Uh, he does Star Trek Enterprise. He's on Monk. He was a recurring character on 24. I believe a villainous character. Yes. I think this starts the kind of villain phase of his career. Yes, which uh, feels set like right, especially because I, I, I don't know if he starts it's uh, balding or if he starts shaving his head. Right. But like he does have this kind of like creepy, like evil presence in a lot of stuff from here on yes, out. Yes, Um In 2000, he does a film called Shadow Hours about a gas station attendant um, who meets a stranger, played by Peter Weller, who entices him to abandon AA and give in to his wild impulses. Honestly, that sounds kind of cool. <laughs> Uh, also sounds like he's definitely a villain. <laughs> yeah. Would like to watch Peter Weller do that. Um, uh, I lost my place. Oh, there we go. Uh, he then does a film called Falling Through, which is a crime drama A crime drama he does with Roy Scheider. And then he does The Contaminated Man, a drama with William Hurt. It's a great title. I know. Uh, he then does a film called Ivan's X. TC? Ecstasy. Ecstasy. I assume that's what they're, okay. they're going for there. It's an update on a Leo uh, Tolstoy story directed by Bernard Rose, who was the director of Candyman. <sighs> I was looking kind into this one because of B- mostly yeah. because of that director, um, but I, but I wasn't able to get my hands on it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there was like a ton of info or yeah. kind of like anything about it. Um, he then does a film, a TV film called Prince, Dark Prince, the true story of Dracula. Okay. And in 2000, he is in a film called The Order. 2003. Uh, or 2003 uh, with Heath Ledger, yes. uh, which is another one we decided to watch just because we wanted to do a 2000s movie and like seeing like one of like Heath Ledger's kind of like. Er, not like early early but this is around the time he does like Knight's Tale and stuff so he like does gain some popularity and this is also the same director yes Um, as a Knight's Tale yeah yeah well uh, this would ultimately be just a couple of years before he plays Joker and and ultimately passes away which is kind of wild actually um but yeah I mean this is this is like eh, fine I guess I feel like a lot of these uh mid like early to mid 2000s movies are very uninteresting i mean this is one of those movies that the way i described it to you i think this is a blank check phrase this is a movie that doesn't exist like this is i don't i was this is the period when i was seeing movies the most and i had i was living in my parents house with cable if they were advertising a movie i saw the commercials i was in the theater seeing trailers for everything i do not remember the order ever coming out or existing and it's like it's a weird like religious horror like it's about a a young priest played by heath ledger whose like mentor dies and he goes to rome to like uncover the mystery around the death death. and then uh there's like this concept of like a sin eater that comes about and they and he it seems like they think the sin eater like killed his mentor and so they're trying to track him down so there's like some interesting like lore in it when they get into the idea that they're from this like specific sect of priests who are that like, are, like uh, kind of like secular priests almost yeah they're, like, they're really they're interested in learning knowledge. yeah which like is is a thing like i this like felt like a a national treasure for like yeah. emo kids or yes. something like there was like it's like oh we're dark and gritty but we're like investigating yeah. like historical documents and stuff which like i i kind of love that stuff although this 
ultimately is like a pretty drab and boring yeah. movie. Well, and anytime Peter Weller is involved, it's, it's great. great. He's and really good in this. A he's fun, just, tasty villain. Yeah, and at first, like he's like just playing this like cardinal that kind of like comes and tells yeah. him like his mentor died and is like helping him like along with the investigation. Uh, but then, like by the end, there's like some twists and turns, and you realize there is a very good reason you hire Peter Weller for yes, the role, yes. and they uh, utilize him like very really well. well. And and all of the production design surrounding his character is the best shit in the movie. Yeah. It's really cool. Really cool. Um, and and it, it's the, so I've never seen a Knight's Tale actually, and mm, the, I, I know a lot bits, of I know a lot of people that really like that movie. And yeah. my understanding of why people like that movie is. It is a medieval movie, but it's anachronistic. It's got rock and roll music in yeah. it. The characters talk like they just are alive now as opposed to then. Yeah. And this movie, ha- the order has a lot of trouble figuring out its tone. Mm. There are scenes that are like that, where it's yeah. like kind of a punk rock movie about priests, you know? Yeah. That has like a dark edge to it. But then... For a lot of it, it's also like very self serious, like kind of for no reason. And yeah. literally, the first half hour is like totally self serious, and I had no idea it was eventually going to open up yeah. into a more anachronistic kind of weird movie. And the times when it's anachronistic and weird, I was in. I was like, this kind of rocks. But that's like 30 minutes of a two hour movie. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, this was also kind of long. Yeah. Uh, so I wish that I liked this more. I think there's interesting stuff in it. Yeah. I don't know that I can totally recommend it to people. Yeah. It's definitely not my, like, uh, I don't know, horror decade. Yeah, a yeah. lot of the studio horrors just kind of. That's the uh, thing. It's lame. studio horror of this era, yeah. which is always a little lame, I think. Yeah. Um, in 2005, he plays a rabbi in Man of God. All right. Um, he then does a musical like romance film called undiscovered with steven moyer ashley simpson and carrie fisher super fucking weird mm. grouping of people um and then he does the Pos- the poseidon adventure tv movie which like was a reboot i guess of the what's weird is i thought this w- i thought at first that this was the remake of the poseidon remake, adventure yeah. which i realized it's not i mean it is but it's not the one i'm thinking of is called poseidon oh, and okay. it's like a big studio movie that was a remake of the Got poseidon it adventure this is apparently yet another remake of the poseidon Weird. adventure but for tv but uh wrecker hauer our... which i don't think we talked about this i think sometimes IMDb i think we is weird blew with stuff. by it as oh he was in that remake of poseidon i think like i kind of remember but like it's him c thomas howell so we they come back well yeah. they were in the hitcher together yes um and then adam baldwin so it's oh, like just a yeah. really weird grouping we might have to humans. track this down at some point um, in 2006, he does a crime drama called The Hard Easy with David Boreanaz, Henry Thomas, Verga Farmiga, Bruce Stern, Nick Lachey, and Gary Busey. What the fuck? I kept writing names because it got weirder every time yes. I read another name. That's a wild cast. It's insane. Uh, like also, like I was like Nick Lachey. I like, yeah. like I totally forgot about him as yeah, like a you human were a person, let alone yeah. ever acted in. And anything. then I had to look up and Google Nick Lachey, yeah. and yeah, I went into a weird rabbit hole after finding uh-huh. this was a movie. Um, in 2007, he does a TV film called Prey. An American family on holiday in Africa becomes lost in a game reserve and stalked by lions. Weird. They probably deserve it. Uh-huh. 
Um, and then we get to his career in the 2010s. Um, so for TV, he has a recurring role on Dexter in like the fifth, fourth or fifth I season. I think it's the fifth season. He's like a PI. Who's kind of like tracking Dexter yeah. for one of the other cops that is like suspicious that something's going on with Dexter. Yeah. And now, so I only ever saw the first season of Dexter. I mm-hmm. never got into the later seasons, but our friend Jacob described it as he's great on the show because the moment he shows up, he's like, yeah, I know what Dexter's fucking deal is. He's killing people. Like, yeah. he, he just, like, gets him immediately. He, like, he's plays, like, kind of insane and wild in this, which yeah, is really fun, too. Yeah, we a couple too. clips. He's, like, a fast-talking asshole, kind of. Yeah, he's, like, always got a Hawaiian shirt on and yeah. is, like, chugging tequila and just, like, ah, I'm a P.I. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I really liked his performance in the scenes that we watched. Yeah, it's, like, pretty fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't miss Dexter and feel like it was not actually that great of a show. Yeah. Uh, but I was excited to like go back specifically to realize like an actor I really liked was in it and like definitely didn't appreciate when I saw this season of Dexter. I assume, I mean, one of the scenes we watched, I have to assume if you're a Dexter fan is something that is like a bit of a catchphrase. He meets Dexter in a bar. Dexter introduces himself to him and he goes, Dexter, what the fuck kind of name is that? <laughs> I know. Um, he has a recurring role on Sons of Anarchy, uh, MacGyver, Fringe, Psych, House. He was in, like, all of the, like, I don't, like, USA kind of shows. Yeah, network and, Yeah, dramas. like, network dramas. And, it's and pretty interesting. Goes on to direct episodes of many of them. Like, that becomes his directing career, is directing yeah. for TV. I have some of those notes of, like, okay, stuff cool. he did. Um he uh, also did, like, some voice work for TV and for, like, video games. So he uh, did Batman and several, like, Batman, like, videos and TV things. He did them, I guess, for some video games. But the thing yeah. that I recognize him from Batman-wise that I do recommend to people mm-hmm. is they did an animated version of The Dark Knight Returns, which is Frank Miller's famous mm-hmm. 80s Batman comic book. And Peter Weller plays Batman in those. And the reason he's so good in them is... He's a much older man now himself, but the mm-hmm. idea of that comic is it's like Batman in his 60s, yeah. and he's just like perfect for it. He really, really nails it. it, it it's actually a wonderful uh, voice performance for him. He also returns uh, to do voice work as RoboCop in Family Guy and uh, the Mortal Kombat 11 game. Yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely curious if he actually goes to the studio to do voice work for these, yeah. or if there's just like an archive of Peter Weller as RoboCop voice that they're able to pull yeah. from i don't know but yeah. yeah i mean he did like i mean with all the batman stuff and everything i right. wouldn't be surprised if he was yes. just doing Agreed. voice yeah. work um in 2010 he does once fallen a crime drama with ed harris love ed harris in 2011 he does a film called force to fight a blackmailed uh blackmailed back into the arena by a ruthless crime boss a former underground fight fighting legend must survive a gauntlet of savage matches where losing just one fight means losing it all <laughs> okay um, the most literal title to a movie ever Forced i know to fight. Uh, in 2012, he does a film called Dragon Eyes with Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know we're looking that one up later. Yeah, who we became fans of, obviously. Yeah. Um, in 2013, he does a film called Repentance with Anthony Mackie and Forrest Whitaker. Okay. 
Um, and then uh, in the same year, he does Star Trek Into Darkness, which um, I have seen, but not in some time. I, think I, I love. Only saw it in the theater. Yeah, I love the uh, the first J.J. Uh, Abrams yeah, uh, Star Trek movie. It's like one of my fucking favorite movies. I, it's like my I'm in a bad mood. I need something to cheer me up. Movies. Yeah. Um, this one was not so good, but yeah. I remember being like pumped about it because I also loved Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. around this time and his role in Sherlock. So I was like. Oh man, I get Chris Pine and Benedict Cumberbatch, two of my like hot like crushes sure. like in one movie. Um, but yeah, I ultimately don't remember him that much in this. I know you said you looked up some clips. Yeah, I, I watched some clips because I couldn't remember him in it either. And he's like kind of the villain of the movie. He's like the commander of Starfleet. Yeah. And the the plot is that like he made this mistake a long time ago and thinks that waking Khan up mm. because Khan is like this like tactical genius can help him kind of correct that mistake only to realize like that's an even bigger mistake. So now he needs to kill Khan and basically like he becomes a villain in as much as Kirk is very uncomfortable with what his solution to Mm. this problem he's created would be. Yeah. Um, And it ultimately builds to like his character basically saying like, I'm going to execute you, Kurt uh, Kirk. And it was, I was like, Whoa. Okay. And it's like, it's great stuff. I mean, it's like Peter Willard literally just on the other side of a video screen with Chris Pine, like through the whole movie, you know? But he's great because he's a great monologist. So it's like he works as the guy on the other side of the video screen. Like he's great for it. Once you said that, I was like, oh, yes. Like all of that makes so much sense. I like kind of remember that character. So like, yes, he would be perfect for that. Yeah, he's good in it. Um, And what I thought was interesting is uh, just like how he got the the role. Yeah, this is a funny story. Um, so he had done an episode of Fringe, and he said he had a meeting at the Bad Robot offices about some directing work. Afterwards, this young guy follows him to the parking lot and starts talking to him. Turns out it's J.J. Abrams. Um, they talk a lot about, like, why he'd taken the role in Fringe and what, like, you know, really drew him to it. And he said, like, it kind of has something to do with, like, a similar experience he and his wife had had in real life, uh, which I think is interesting. That's weird. I have no idea what that would be in reference to in regards to Fringe. Yeah. Um. He, he says, four hours later, my agent calls up and says, you know, Bad Robot wants to hire you. And he goes, yeah, for what show? And they go, well, it's not for a show. JJ wants to hire you to be one of the nine stars of Star Trek. Yeah. Which is like wild. Yes. Uh, and I, I really love that, uh, which is like, oh, yeah. like That feels like Stuff a very... like that is why you don't have to audition. <laughs> yes. That feels like a very J.J. Abrams story as yeah. well. Um, there was also an article about him, like, kind of defending the Abrams alternate, like, timeline kind of thing, because so many Trekkies, like, don't like yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and him just being like, well, yeah, like, what a clever way to make your own, like, Star yeah. Trek movies. And I'm like, yes, I agree. That's well, why I love that movie so and, much. And it also applies, interestingly, to Peter Weller, because he played a character in Enterprise. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he literally so is, is one of, of the examples of there needing to be an alternate timeline. Yeah. Um, in 2014, he does a film called Skin Trade, which uh, was written and starred uh, Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Uh, and it also has Ron, Ron Perlman in it. Yep. Uh, I remember when this movie came out. I feel like I want to see this movie, but I feel like I know this movie is not actually going to please me. Yeah, probably not. Um, in 2017, he does a film called Yamasong, March of the Howls, uh, which... Looks like it was like a, a puppet movie. I looked it up and I was like, 
the production of this looks incredible. It looks incredible. I've never fucking heard of no, it. No, me neither. But the cast is Nathan Wild. Fillion, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Abigail Breslin, Bruce Davison, George Takai. It's got so many fucking people in it. And it's I wild. bet they're all doing voices of these puppet characters. I'm sure. And that makes sense to me that that's how these, you know, this odd collection of people ends up in a movie together, yeah. right? It's so, in- and I mean, I love Fillion. Just oh, that yeah, alone. I was like, oh yeah, I want to watch this. Um, so yeah, he, uh, like that was like most of the, his work. Um, but he is still doing a lot of like directing, um, and mostly directing TV. He's done, he's directed episodes of MacGyver, Longmere, um, Hawaii Five-O, Sons of Anarchy, Monk, House, Justified, Magnum P.I. Um, and then he also does a film from 97 called Gold Coast. Um, he talks about directing says I like it a lot more than acting I think I always wanted to be a storyteller I just always wanted to be the storyteller rather than the performer I find more satisfaction in it what's interesting is so you had told me that he got into directing a lot of TV and so I'm watching that Kevin Pollack interview with him and that's from like 10 years ago now Mm -hmm. and in that interview he's going like yeah I've gotten to like direct a little bit of TV like some of the shows I was on they let me like direct some episodes Honestly, I think if they let me just direct TV, mm. I'd stop acting. Like, he says yeah. then, like, I would just stop acting and just direct. And then, like, literally, that's what he does for those next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he, in some of the articles, like, talked about, like, maybe having some, like, film stuff come up. I didn't really see anything on the on his IMDb. Um, one of the big things that came up when I was looking up, like, interviews and stuff was mostly that, like, uh, they completed the RoboCop documentary uh, in May of this year, and Peter Weller like did come and do an interview for it. Yeah, so once once he did it, they were able to like kind of wrap up. Um, so that was like the big Weller news I kept seeing like yeah. all over the internet. Um, what I think is fascinating about him is that in 2014, uh, Peter Weller, uh, also known as Dr. Peter Weller, yep. received his PhD in Italian Renaissance art history and Roman history uh, at UCLA. Mm-hmm. He had previously received his master's of arts in a degree in the same subjects. Um, he it seems like was like realized like like later in his life how much he like cared about art. He talks about um, specifically this moment where he saw Picasso's Guernica piece at MoMA before it was going back to Spain and like they did this big retrospective on Picasso and his work and how a lot of this stuff and like visual art and like the things he really was interested in like started clicking which like I don't know if you've seen Guernica in person but it was at the Philadelphia Art Museum for a while oh, maybe it's I probably did. my favorite Picasso I didn't even think I liked Picasso until I saw this yeah. it's like an incredible painting um, so I, I kind of love that that's like one of his big inspirations in the Kevin Pollack interview and for Forgive me because I, I didn't take the time to write the woman's name down and I should have. There's like a woman in his life that is not his wife. Mm-hmm. He's still very good friends with her that I believe took him to this exhibit. And mm-hmm. he was like, I had seen art before. I never cared about art. Yeah. This woman took me to this exhibit and it rewired me. Yeah. He was like, I was so obsessed with art after that. And he was like, and this woman just like basically kind of like. Uh, um, what would you say? Like, like, uh, helped blossom this l- newfound mm. love of art in him. That's cool. And encouraged him to go to Italy and go learn and go get educated. Like and that. like, 
And so, and then eventually he, but that builds him getting a PhD. He yeah. wrote a whole dissertation. In yeah, multiple I have... interviews I found, he was complaining about people being like, hey, Dr. Weller, and him being like, I'm not a doctor yet. I'm still in the middle of my dissertation. I'll hope I never have to write anything ever again in my life. <laughs> yeah, he, one of the things I saw was about him doing like some directing work and, and acting while working he on his continuing PhD. To work, yes. And like him lucking out with like them like, getting him a car to get him to his like present his part of his dissertation he was doing like this whole powerpoint on it um his dissertation i found which like i find interesting because i am like an academic nerd um his dissertation was on alberti before florence early sources informing leon batista's alberti's de pictara uh yes i don't know what half of that means but it sounds fascinating um when he talks about art my mind kind of like goes blank but i'm just like oh yeah you're just like an incredibly smart dude that knows a lot about your subject which i find even though i don't understand it i'm very interested in people that like are so like confident and passionate in their area um i also found this really funny quote about um just about academia in general he says the bureaucracy the bureaucracy of academia makes the movie business look like mary poppins man the movie business by comparison is cream cheese he said a similar <laughs> thing in the kevin pollack interview he was like he was like man you think they're crazy in the movie business get into academics oh man and then i was like oh he's right why yeah. why did i do this to myself <laughs> he uh yeah and uh i mean to t- so it's like he's got this thing where he becomes obsessed with art he's like really into art mm-hmm. he goes off to get a fucking phd in and, is, and is a teacher like he, yep. like there are you can look him up on like the rate my and his right. students are like oh my teacher's the robocop it's amazing yeah. it's like really funny but he also we talked about a little bit like he is like legitimately a jazz musician yeah. he plays jazz trumpet apparently had a house band with jeff goldblum at some point in Amazing. his past where him and uh goldblum played jazz together at some venue so it was just them doing buckaroo bonsai and deciding that they're actually going to start a band right yeah uh like he is this kind of renaissance man yeah. you know he is this in my opinion what i have gathered from now watching him in some interviews and mm-hmm kind of picking up on some of these themes in his movies to his characters and stuff. I really think he is like a fucking yuppie. I think he's like a former beatnik yeah. who probably today still considers himself a beatnik, but is actually like, you know, maybe a little too much of like a, uh, like the wrong kind of liberal idiot to like fully grasp mm. like what, you know what I'm saying? Like he just, I think has moved into that kind of yuppie thing where it's like, He's very educated, and that might actually be, like, working against him in as much as, like, the actual social things he might be concerned yeah. with. Um, I had two other notes here that I just thought were interesting. One is that he speaks Italian fluently, which I wonder okay. if he uh, did that for his Ph.D., because oftentimes people have to learn sure. another language to get their Ph.D. Um, and then he was also considered for the role of Detective Nick Curran in Basic Instinct, uh, which is a movie that I fell in love with very yeah. recently. Uh, and I just think that thinking about him in that role as opposed to Michael Douglas is very interesting. It is interesting, because I actually could see him in that role, but yeah. I do think it does become somewhat of a different movie with him in that role yeah i mean douglas i just think is like a little bit of a putz in general and so it works for me even better in basic instinct uh since like he's just playing this like cat and mouse game with a cat that is very obviously gonna like swallow him whole um i also think that there is some legitimate like uh sexual energy to um 
uh, uh, Michael Douglas that I don't read on Weller necessarily. Like, mm-hmm. Shakedown is the only one of the movies we watched where he's so charismatic in a way that I was like, oh, yeah. I get it. Young Peter Weller is sexy. Yeah, you know he, what I mean? But he like, avoided a lot of the erotic thriller type yeah. stuff that was, you know, popular in yeah. the 90s, yeah. it seems like. So it, it is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, uh, and then just some of the sources I found uh, for, like, interviews and such. Uh, there's stuff on sci-fionline.com. Uh, the EW.com has a um, just an anniversary uh, review and interview with Peter Weller. Um, NTDaily.com, which is the North Texas Daily, because he's an alumni, so they yeah. talk about him on there. Um, Vulture.com and uh, news.artnet.com, uh, which talks a lot about like him and uh, him becoming an art historian. That's really cool. Fun. Yeah, and if you uh, go to YouTube, you can find some interviews with him that I thought were interesting. Yeah. He was even on a show talking literally just about jazz. I found like a 30-minute <laughs> interview with him where he was just talking about jazz. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. I uh, loved doing Peter Weller, and I really cannot recommend Shakedown enough to people. That's like my big recommendation <laughs> out of this episode. Yeah, Shakedown's a lot of fun. Also, revisit Buckaroo. It's it's a classic yeah. for a reason. Uh, cool. So yeah, we uh, are done. We are done. Uh, so we should one. announce who we're going to do yeah, next. Yeah, so uh, our next person we're going to do is Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, who yeah. part of me was like, maybe she's too big of a star, but like I've seen so much weird genre B-movie stuff with her lately that I like need to do her. She she fits. Yeah. She does. She's one of the, uh, what would you say, maybe lucky ones that gets to break out into yeah. some legitimate Hollywood stardom, and but I'm, definitely has a lot of B-movie stuff in her. Yeah, and I'm interested to see like what the stuff is that like she is like m- like so known for, because I feel yeah. like some some of that stuff like I have missed like sure. like for her I guess more like Hollywood yeah. type work um, because I mostly know her from genre stuff especially in recent years yeah. um, she's done some really awesome stuff with like newer filmmakers that mm-hmm. I appreciate yeah um, so yeah check us uh, out for that episode yeah very excited about that you can find us ever on the internet at Killer Bees Podcast that's Killer BS Podcast and on moviejohn.com, J-A-W-N. Yep. Um, you can find me online at Philadelphia. That's with an F. I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd. And uh, look me up on moviejohn.com. Uh, my series, uh, Big Ideas, Small Budgets, continues. I just put a, yet another Godzilla piece on there. Uh, so check that out. Yeah. Uh, also on moviejohn.com, you can check out my different reviews and, of course, my Cronenberg uh, series, as well as my Women Who Kill series, which will be released once a month. Uh, you can find me on, you know, social media things at Tori Potenza or, you know, talk to me on our Killer Bees Twitter because uh, that is my only Twitter presence. So. That's right. Uh, cool. Let's get out of here. Buzz, buzz. Buzz.